welcome to Russian History Retold, episode 241, Alexander Solzhenitsyn telling the story of life in the USSR. Last time, we discussed the life of the first person to win a Nobel Prize in Literature, Ivan Bunin. Today, we will discuss another giant literary figure, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, this time in the Soviet Union. Alexander Isayevich Solzhenitsyn was born on December 11, 1918, in Kislovodsk, Soviet Russia, to Isaki Semyonovich Solzhenitsyn, who was of Russian descent, and his mother, Taisia Zakharovna, who was of Ukrainian descent. When Alexander was only six months old, his father was killed in a hunting accident. Alexander's father had built himself and his family up from poor peasants to wealthy landowners and farmers. Of course, with the Bolsheviks taking control of the government, their large farm was converted into a collective one. His mother, Tysia, and his aunt would raise Alexander under trying conditions. One thing, though, his mother did stress, and she was reasonably well-educated, was that education was essential. This would guide the young man for the rest of his life. His mother would die in 1944, never having remarried. She also raised her son in the Russian Orthodox faith, which, as you might imagine, was quite dangerous then. Solzhenitsyn was 18 when he began to develop the characters and the scenes for his first book, August 1914. It would be based on the events of World War I and the Russian Revolution. Unfortunately, only a few chapters remain of this epic. In 1941, before the start of the war, Solzhenitsyn began his studies of mathematics and physics at Rostov State University. At the same time, he took correspondence courses at the Moscow Institute of Philosophy, Literature, and History, which was heavily controlled by the communist state. Nevertheless, Solzhenitsyn did not question the Soviet way of thinking and was a very loyal citizen. At the beginning of the war, Alexander was quite ill, so he was relegated to driving horse-drawn carts. When it was discovered that he was mathematically inclined, he was transferred to an artillery school. He took a crash course, passing the exam in November 1942. Immediately after this, he was put in command of an artillery position-finding company. Solzhenitsyn served honorably, receiving several awards for his ability to position and fire artillery barrages right into the enemy's positions. He would serve in this capacity, without a break, right in the front lines, until he was arrested in February 1945. As you might imagine, his arrest surprised the young man. I will read his side of the story to you as he presented to the Nobel Prize Committee many years later. Quote, I was arrested on the grounds of what the censorship had found during the years 1944 to 45 in my correspondence with a school friend, mainly because of a certain disrespectful remarks made about Stalin although we refer, refer to him in disguised terms. As a further basis for the charge, there were used the, the drafts of stories and reflections which had been found in my map case. These, however, were not sufficient for a prosecution, and in July 1945 I was sentenced 
in my absence, in accordance with the procedure then frequently applied after a resolution by the OSO, which is the special committee of the NKVD, and I was sentenced to eight years in a detention camp. At the time, this was considered a mild sentence. I served the first part of my sentence in several correctional work camps of mixed types. This kind of camp is described in the play The Tenderfoot and the Tramp. In 1946, as a mathematician, I was transferred to the group of scientific research institutes of the MVDMOB, which is the Ministry of Internal Affairs, Ministry of State Security. I spent the middle period of my sentence in such special prisons, known as the First Circle. In 1950, I was sent to the newly established special camps, which were intended only for political prisoners. In such a camp in the town of Igbatsuz in Kazakhstan, one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich, I worked as a miner, a bricklayer, and a foundryman. There, I contracted a tumor which was operated on, but the condition was not cured. Its character was not established until later on. One month after I had served the full term of my eight-year sentence, there came, without any new judgment and even without a resolution from the OSO, an administrative decision to the effect that I was not to be released, but exiled for life to Kok Terak in southern Kazakhstan. This measure was not directed especially against me, but was a very usual procedure at the time. This transformative period took a loyal citizen of the Soviet Union to one who was totally dismayed with the direction his country was taking. This period is when Solzhenitsyn began to write about how bad things were in his home country. His time in the gulags of the Soviet Union would produce some of the greatest works in literary history. Here is more from Solzhenitsyn's autobiography from the Nobel Prize website. I served this exile from March 1953 on March 5th, when Stalin's death was made public. I was allowed for the first time to go out without an escort until June 1956. Here, my cancer had developed rapidly. At the end of 1953, I was very near death. I was unable to eat, I could not sleep, and was severely affected by the poisons from the tumor. However, I was able to go to a cancer clinic in Tashkent, where, during 1954, I was cured. Hence the book, The Cancer Ward, Right Hand. During all the years of exile, I taught mathematics and physics in a primary school. And during my hard and lonely existence, I wrote prose in secret. In the camp, I could only write down poetry from memory. I managed, however, to keep what I had written and to take it with me to the European part of the country, where, in the same way, I continued, as far as the outer world was concerned, to occupy myself with teaching and, in secret, to devote myself to writing, at first in the Vladimir district, Matryona's farm, and afterward in Ryazan. During all the years until 1961, not only was I convinced that I should never see a single line of mine in print in my lifetime, but, also, I scarcely dared allow any of my close acquaintances to read anything I had written, because I feared that this would become known. Finally, at the age of 42, 
the secret authorship began to wear me down. The most difficult thing of all to bear was that I could not get my works judged by people with literary training. In 1961, after the 22nd Congress of the USSR Communist Party and Tverdovsky's speech at this, I decided to emerge and to offer One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. Such an emergence seemed, then, to me, and not without reason, to be very risky because it might lead to the loss of my manuscripts and to my own destruction. But on that occasion, things turned out successfully, and after protracted efforts, A.T. Vardovsky was able to print my novel one year later. The printing of my work was, however, stopped almost immediately, and the authorities stopped both my plays, and in 1964, the novel, The First Circle, which in 1965, was seized together with my papers from the past years. During these months, it seemed to me that I had committed an unpardonable mistake by revealing my work prematurely, and that because of this, I should not be able to carry it to a conclusion. It is almost always impossible to evaluate at the time events which you have already experienced and to understand their meaning with the guidance of their effects. All the more unpredictable and surprising to us will be the course of future events. It's hard to imagine how difficult life was for Alexander Solzhenitsyn, with all of this literary genius stuck in his mind, and on papers hidden from authorities, with no audience to show off all of his talents. The pressure, as you heard, was pretty intense. However, with the ascension of Nikita Khrushchev in 1953, things somewhat began to ease up for Solzhenitsyn. This became even more apparent with the anti-Stalin speech that the first secretary gave on February 25, 1956, at the 20th Party Congress. This so-called secret speech denounced Stalin's purges, and ushered in a less repressive era in the Soviet Union. I really highly recommend to the listeners to go online, search in whatever native language you have, uh, about the so-called secret speech. I may do an episode where I just read that off to all of you. I'm still debating that. Uh, I have episodes planned into 2023, into February already, with some of them, uh, the script's already written. So I'm trying to find in and sneak in a time where I can put in a reading of the secret speech, because I think it's important to understand at that time how the Soviet Union was being transformed from the Stalinist repression era to a more open period. And I think it always... uh, reflects on the time when Gorbachev took over, later on, uh, from the Yuri Andropov, Konstantin Chernenko period, where there was still repression right after Brezhnev, and how you know Gorbachev released things a bit, and how that transformed the country and led to its inventional uh, destruction. But I think it's an important speech to read, because it does kind of repeat itself with Gorbachev. So, 
uh, recommendation to all of you if you have any spare time. Uh, with some added freedom to write, Solzhenitsyn began to write his seminal work, The Gulag Archipelago, starting in 1958. He would finish the three-volume work in 1968. Unfortunately, the book would only be published in 1973, with the French and English translations coming out the following year. Even though it was out, it was not readily available to Soviet citizens. After the KGB had raided his apartment and confiscated Solzhenitsyn materials in Moscow beginning in 1965, and continuing for the next two years, the preliminary drafts of the Gulag Archipelago were turned into finished transcripts, sometimes in hiding at his uh, friends' homes in the Moscow region and elsewhere. Since it had already been smuggled out of the Soviet Union, the West had been able to see what the Gulag system was through the eyes of an inmate and those Solzhenitsyn interviewed. The book was microfilmed and smuggled out to Solzhenitsyn's leading legal representative, Fritz Hebe of Zurich, to await publication. In 1970, Alexander won the Nobel Prize for Literature. In 1973, the KGB was able to find and destroy one of only three copies of the work that were still in Moscow. But there was no way to completely hide the book from those who were brave enough to want it. As Anne Applebaum writes in the forward to the second volume, 2020 edition, quote, Although more than three decades have now passed since the winter of 1974, when unbound, hand-typed, Samzdat manuscripts of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago first began circulating around what was then the Soviet Union. The emotions the book stirred have left marks which remain today. Usually, the readers were only given 24 hours to finish the lengthy manuscript before it had to be passed on to the next person. That meant spending an entire day and a whole night absorbed in Solzhenitsyn's prose not an experience anyone was likely to forget. Members of that first generation of readers remember who gave the book to them, who else knew about it, whom they passed it on to next. They remember what the book felt like, the blurry mimeographed text, the dog-eared paper, the dim glow of the lamp switched on late at night, and with whom they later discussed it. Can you imagine reading a book for 24 hours, but it was so spellbinding that you couldn't put it down and you knew you had to get it out of your hands before the authorities could catch you. What an incredible, almost invigorating situation they must have felt in, but also frightening. When Solzhenitsyn won the Nobel Prize, he was scared to go to Stockholm to accept the award as he feared he would not be allowed to re-enter the Soviet Union. This was likely to be accurate, as the Soviet authorities were furious with the book and the man. The Gulag Archipelago was the first book to historically cover the complete history of the system of Soviet concentration camps. It was not only his story of his time in the Gulag, but that of, quote, reports, memoirs, and letters by 227 witnesses. One of the essential takeaways from the book 
is that it was Lenin and not Stalin who was responsible for setting up the Gulag system. This was a shock to many in the USSR, as they believed that it was Stalin who was solely responsible. Now, the book not only condemned the Soviet prison system, but it also condemned the entirety of the Soviet Union. Because of this, Solzhenitsyn would be expelled from the country on February 12, 1974. He would not return until after the fall of the Soviet Union. However, his citizenship was reinstated in 1990, and he would return in 1994. Before I go on with Solzhenitsyn's literary career, I'd like to address his personal life. It has some controversial issues, primarily related to his first wife, as well as opinion about Ukrainian independence. On April 7, 1940, Alexander married Natalia Alexeyevna Reshtovskaya, someone he met at Rostov State University. Unfortunately, they only spent one year together as husband and wife when Alexander was sent to the army. After his arrest in 1945, additional hardships would be put on Natalia, as those spouses and families of prisoners in the gulag system were often denied jobs and adequate housing. This became too much for Natalia, so they divorced in 1952. After Solzhenitsyn was released from prison, the two actually would remarry in 1957. Their second marriage, though, would end in 1972 acrimoniously. In her memoir, Sanya, My Life with Alexander Solzhenitsyn, she was highly critical of her ex-husband, going so far as to accuse him of making up parts of the Gulag archipelago. Although there was no hard evidence it is likely that Natalia was pushed by Soviet authorities to embarrass Alexander. We have evidence that on September 19, 1974, Yuri Andropov approved a large-scale operation to discredit Solzhenitsyn and his family and cut his communications with Soviet dissidents. That was the same year that Natalia's book came out. It has been speculated that KGB agents actually wrote the book. In 1973, Solzhenitsyn married his second wife, Natalia Dmitrievna Svetlova. They would have three children together, Yermolai, Ignat, and Stepan. Seeing that Yermolai was born in 1970 gives some credence to the claims by Alexander's first wife that he was a philanderer and unfaithful. One area where there is much criticism of Solzhenitsyn is his belief that Ukrainian independence is wrong and should be stopped at any cost. As you might imagine, this made him immensely popular with Putin, someone Alexander actually had a great affinity for. Solzhenitsyn was a strong Russophile, believing that the old ways were the best. Almost hypocritically, he was highly critical of the Romanov dynasty, particularly anti-Alexis I. Solzhenitsyn complained that the schism caused by the reforms of Patriarch Nikon and approved by Alexis 
hurt the Russian Orthodox Church, and divided the country. He further went on to criticize the excommunication, Siberian exile, imprisonment, torture, and even burning at the stake against the old believers who rejected the liturgical changes which caused the schism. In an interview with Joseph Pierce, Solzhenitsyn commented the following, quote, The old believers were treated amazingly unjustly because some very insignificant trifling differences in ritual which were promoted with poor judgment and without much sound basis. Because of these small differences, they were persecuted in very many cruel ways. They were suppressed. They were exiled. From the perspective of historical justice, I sympathize with them, and I am on their side. But this in no way ties in with what I have just said about the fact that religion, in order to keep up with mankind, must adapt its forms toward modern culture. In other words, do I agree with the old believers that religion should freeze and not move at all? Not at all. There seems a bit of hypocrisy in here. He's saying that these are trivial and small changes, and, you know, you shouldn't have persecuted them, shouldn't have done much, shouldn't have said much. But should they stop, you know, and freeze it at that point? No, no, no. No, they should have changed it. Uh, this is something that you do find in some of the writings of Solzhenitsyn, so do be aware of it. Uh, I'm not going to put him up on a pedestal and say he was without faults, but his literary works, as you might imagine, are pretty amazing. Uh, some called Solzhenitsyn an arch-conservative, and some actually had the opposite point of view. Uh, notedly, he was staunchly anti-communist and put forth very conservative viewpoints. These statements made him a darling of the American conservative movement, especially with then-President Ronald Reagan. When Solzhenitsyn arrived in the United States in 1976, he was warmly greeted by many. He was given an honorary degree from Harvard University and even invited to give the commencement speech in 1978. In that speech, Alexander condemned, among other things, the press, the lack of spirituality and traditional values, and the human exceptionalism of Western culture. When President Reagan came into office in 1981, the Cold War began to, so to say, heat up. Solzhenitsyn warned the West that they needed to remain vigilant against communism. During this time in the United States, his wife and three sons became citizens. Alexander would work on, Solzh would work on uh, the dramatized history of the Russian Revolution of 1917 and also the Red Wheel as well as many other smaller works. When his citizenship to the Soviet Union was restored in 1990, plans were made to return to Russia. This accelerated when the USSR collapsed the following year. Solzhenitsyn would return in 1994 with his wife and one of his sons. His work, Rebuilding Russia, was highly critical of how post-Soviet reforms were being made, Alexander believed that a strengthening of relations between the church and state was necessary. He also caused, called for establishing a strong presidential republic balanced by vigorous institutions of local self-government. 
Putin has actually used this strengthening of relations between the church and state to prop his own administration up. Uh, you could argue for and against that. Uh, it is a political reality that's going on in the Russia today. So do understand that this was part of uh, Solzhenitsyn's point of view. And so Putin has actually used this to talk about his regime and legitimize what he's doing. Uh, during the first year back in uh, Russia, he hosted a television show in which Solzhenitsyn would begin with a 15-minute monologue. It would be canceled the following year. Uh, became quite unpopular. However, Solzhenitsyn would continue to publish a number of works, including The Grain Between the Milestones, as well as a number of short stories. Two other works would be published in Russia, Between Two Millstones, Book One, Sketches of Exile, 1974-78, which was translated and published in the West in 2018. The second, Book Two, Exile in America, 1978-1994, to would be translated and published just a few years ago in 2020. Alexander Solzhenitsyn died of heart failure near Moscow on August 3rd, 2008, at the age of 89. His burial service was held at the Donskoy Monastery in Moscow on August 6th. He was buried the same day in the monastery and a spot he had chosen. Russian and world leaders paid tribute to Solzhenitsyn following his death. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time when we tell the story of another 20th century Russian literary giant, Maxim Gorky. So, until next time, Das Vidanya и спасибо большое.